Welcome to the OV Build Podcast, Building to Boss. I'm Casey Renner, VP of Executive Networks here at OpenView. This month, we're releasing a special mini-series with female leaders in the enterprise SaaS industry who know the path to leadership is challenging, but aren't willing to let that stop them from building something great. Today, we hear from Julie Herendine, Chief Marketing Officer at PagerDuty. Julie is a big believer in the power of product-led growth. She has led B2C teams at Yahoo before becoming the CMO at Dropbox, an early innovator in the concept of freemium. In today's episode, we unpack Julie's belief that marketing's role in tech is to bring together the customer, product, and business, PagerDuty's inclusive culture and how that was made clear during their IPO process, and the role alignment and asking for help along the way plays in career growth, company roadmap, and go-to-market strategy. All of that and more in this episode of the Build Mini series, Building to Boss. Let's dive in with Julie Herendine. Julie, thank you so much for joining us, or me, I should say, on the OV Build podcast to talk about all things marketing and, and SaaS and everything in between. So to kick it off, would love to just have you tell us a little bit about PagerDuty. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Casey. And thank you so much for having me on Bill. I'm so excited to be here. We're excited to have you. So it's a win-win. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And yeah, as you know, I'm the CMO at PagerDuty, which is an amazing company. And what we do is we're the leaders in digital operations management. And what that means is that we help our customers with their urgent, time-sensitive work that's really essential to keeping digital services up and running. Um, and as you know, particularly in the past year, we've seen how essential digital is to our everyday lives, right? We live on Zoom, we're all using Slack, we're getting food delivered. And behind those digital services is a really complex set of technologies that the teams have to keep up and running. And why teams use and love PagerDuty is because it makes it easy for them to keep those digital services always on. And when something goes wrong, PagerDuty helps them respond in Seconds, not hours, which is critical because when those services go down, it can cost companies $500,000, a million dollars a minute. So that's what PagerDuty does. I love it. It must have been a one heck of a year for, for you folks over there. Well, <laughs> I mean, I think it was a heck of a year for everybody and especially for our customers. And that was really essential for us to be there as our customers, you know, companies like Zoom. We're scaling to meet the digital needs uh, that were happening with the pandemic. So we talk a lot about digital acceleration. We could really see that in our data that our customers were stretching to make sure that they could meet the needs of their customers in the mm-hmm. pandemic. I love that. So, all right, great on pager duty, but would love to now let's talk a little bit about you. Tell us about your career trajectory. I mean, you went from Yahoo to Dropbox, now to pager duty. So what did that transition look like? You know, how did you make your way from the world of consumer and B2C into enterprise B2B? Yeah, the transition, I'll start with the transition from B2C to B2B and enterprise. And for me, that really started when I was the CMO at Dropbox. Most people know Dropbox, they're an early innovator and freemium, kind of engaging in what we now call product-led growth. And, you know, while, while Dropbox was a B2C company with over 500 million users, we realized that many of those users were business users and the company had really grown organically into B2B, first into SMB and then into mid-market as well. And it was really at Dropbox that I realized that product-led growth, like this model that was used in B2C companies for years, could also be a really powerful go-to-market for B2B. 
and the formula of bringing together like a really great product, a product-led growth kind of onboarding, a strong brand, brand being friction-free, um, creates a lot of velocity in the business. So that's really, that was sort of a turning point for me. And jumping ahead to my current role um, at PagerDuty, you know, that is also a product-led growth company. So the kind of the common theme in taking me from B to C to B to B is really seeing the power of that model. And you know, one of the strengths of PagerDuty is that it really has grown based on the free trial and the free offering so that you know, teams can come and land on PagerDuty and be up and running with the product in a matter of minutes. It's got a simple pricing plan. It's easy to use. It's easy to get started. And those customers that might start as a small team of you know, five people can grow then within the organization to be thousands of people. And the users really become advocates for us within the organization, you know, first in dev and IT, and then growing into organizations like customer support or security. So PagerDuty is just, while it's firmly a B2B company, it's really been able to leverage that same product-led growth model that Dropbox had. Yeah. And I love that I didn't even have to tell you to say product-led growth. And no. you know we're obsessed with that at OpenView, which is one of the reasons we love, you know, we love PagerDuty and certainly uh, look to you folks as a leader in that. But it's funny when you say, you know, ask about the consumer, you know, B2C to B2B. It is, you know, these days, especially it's like B2B is B2C. They're almost, you know kind of one like in, in case you have always said like the marketing fundamentals don't change between b2c and b2b you still need to know who your customer is you need to be really clear what your strategy is to reach them you need to build a solid go to market but now as product like growth has has really bridged those two domains they start to look even more similar in terms of how you reach out to them that there is this digital first outreach and a digital journey that the customer is taking into the product yes very much. I digress, but we did a, a whole you know, conversation at one point around what B2B can learn from B2C and the blurred lines in between. So very much in line with, with what you're saying. So before you became CMO at PagerDuty, you were on the advisory board. What sort of, you know, when you joined the advisory board, what excited you about the opportunity? And then, you know, once you joined, what was it like helping with the transition to becoming a public company? Let me actually start with the transition to being a public company, and because I think that's actually a really great segue into my experience on the advisory board and what that was like. Because going through the IPO with PagerDuty was really, I had started just before the IPO, and it was, it was an incredible experience. And going through that IPO as a CMO, there are a couple learnings that I took away. And one of them will help you understand why I made that transition from being an advisor to being the CMO at PagerDuty. And you know, the first was really that the IPO is a marketing event as well as a financial event. And you know, intellectually, I knew that, but I realized as we went through the IPO process that it was just a huge opportunity to define your market, clearly articulate your positioning, really boost boost the visibility for your brand. And by going public, you can really raise your brand awareness. And we were fortunate in that, you know, Jen Tejada, our CEO, and the rest of the leadership team, you know, they, they want to be out there. They're talking to the media. They are part of that experience. But we were really able to get a lot of brand visibility as we went through that IPO process, which is fantastic. You know, the second is IPO is a great forcing function to ensure that you really have that repeatable, scalable go-to-market in place. And certainly that's something that you're always growing and scaling over time. 
But as you make that transition to the public market, you just need to make sure that you have all of the infrastructure, people, and mechanisms you need to really run that marketing machine. And then I'd say on a personal note, Casey, I don't know, have you ever been on the floor of the, the New York Stock Exchange? I have. It's, it's really cool. <laughs> it's really cool. It, it, is, it is a thrill. And, you know, what I learned is that the, the IPO is really an important moment to share with your company's community, right? And it, it really spoke to the inclusivity of, of our CEO, Jen Tejada, and who she is. She brought over 100 people, employees, investors, customers, longtime customers, onto the New York Stock Exchange floor with her and the leadership team for that IPO. And it really spoke to me in terms of the gratitude and the inclusivity. That's very much part of of Jen, very much part of the pager duty culture. We also ran simultaneous events in all of our offices around the world where we also included customers and other people that have been a really important part of our community. Yeah, so, you know, that's probably a good segue to why I, you know, I went from being on the advisory board to joining a CMO. You know, PagerDuty just has an incredible culture. And the inclusive approach um, that you saw at the IPO that I just referenced was really part of my experience as an advisor. Like Jen included me in so many different activities, whether it was board meetings or customer events or strategic projects like new brand work. I think I was the most activated advisor ever. (laughs) (laughs) So that is really a reflection of the the kind of inclusive culture that's there and the really strong values that are part of PagerDuty. And, you know, certainly you evaluate all of the other components when you decide to take a role. You know, I ask myself, is, you know, is PagerDuty in a great space? You always want to know that that a space is a, a long-term space that, you know, it can be like digital operations management, a $20 billion space or a $60 billion space, not, you know, not a $2 billion space. And, you know, PagerDuty is in an incredible space that, that is really part of a you know fundamental move towards digital first that's been accelerated in the past year through the pandemic but even at that point you could really see where the industry was moving and that teams really needed a better way to manage the digital infrastructures that were becoming more and more essential to their businesses as i mentioned you know minute of downtime can cost five hundred thousand dollars the second thing is you kind of ask yourself if it's a great space is this a great product right do customers love the product? And, and of course, I called up a bunch of my engineering friends. And <laughs> yeah, everyone I talked to was like, I won't work at a company that doesn't use PagerDuty. Right. It, it's so essential for them to be able to manage this time sensitive, mission critical work. And if they can't manage it effectively, it really impacts their ability to be productive and to kind of do the, you know, do the work that they love to do. Yeah. So really hearing that, that wow, PagerDuty was essential to the users. Like I knew it had a high NPS score, but that from customers um, was, was really validating. Yeah. And then, yeah, and then the culture. And, you know, the, the longer I'm in this business, the more important I realize that people and culture are to those decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, so those three things together, I was, you know, really excited to move from being an advisor to being the CMO. Onto the marketing side of things, how do you think about marketing? You know, what what metrics do you value? Are you, you know, quantitative, qualitative? And how do you approach measuring success within an organization? Yeah, maybe I'll start with the first part of that, which is how do I think about marketing? Because I think 
marketing leaders, I always ask where they come from, where they grew up from, because depending on what the answer is to that, they're usually a different type of marketing leader with a different kind of bias and a different strength. And when I reflected, on, I like saw this question and I reflected on it and I, I realized that in becoming a marketing leader and kind of the journey that I've been on really started with a little bit of a chance encounter because I, you know, I, I went to business school and when I graduated business school, I really, I really went to business school because I wanted to be in tech. And I came out and my dream job was to work at Apple. And I didn't quite realize that no one at Apple really wanted to hire marketers at that point in time. This was pretty early in the, in the tech his journey and history. They definitely didn't want to hire a marketer from the Harvard Business School. <laughs> but luckily, you know, I was kind of persistently cold calling people from Apple's lobby, trying to get someone to, to interview me. And I was really fortunate that a, a woman there, a woman named Ivy, Ivy Millman, um, who I haven't talked to in years, took pity on me. And as I was cold calling people, she kind of came down and said, you know, you know, why don't you try to apply as a product manager? Right. Why, why do you think about product management? Because we hire product managers. We're not hiring that many marketers right now. And, and she actually helped me change my resume. And I got a job as a product manager at Apple, which was fantastic. And I spent the first you know, number of years of my career in product management. And that has really influenced me as a marketer. Because when I think about kind of my strengths as a marketer, it's really around being able to bring together the customer, the product, and the business. And, and, you know, I think all great marketing starts with an understanding of customers' problems and then how they experience value through the product. And all of your marketing needs to reflect that. So, so, you know, for me, starting as a product manager has really kind of helped keep me grounded in, you know, how do you think about that magic moment that happens with the customer and the product and how you add value to what they're doing? So that, that's kind of how I grew into marketing, which was from a product background to your question on qualitative and quantitative metrics, it's like all <laughs> all data is good. Um, <laughs> it's true. <laughs> yeah, no, all data is good. I would say, you know, and I'm, I I love that in the you know the SaaS businesses we're in today, we we have a lot of data, and that really helps us understand the customer journey. And you know, I always say when you see something in the data, it's a thread that you pull on, right? It's a question that you ask, um, and the way you answer that may be quantitative, may be qualitative. The important thing with the qualitative data is just you always have to remember that averages lie. Yes. <laughs> right? So when you're looking at qual quantitative data, you want to make sure that you're sub-segmenting. I remember once we looked at our NPS, a different company, not Pedro Didi, our NPS had dropped. And we're kind of scratching our heads over why NPS had dropped. And it was like, oh, geez, does something happen with the product? And, you know, we sub-segmented and realized in Latin America, we were having a customer service problem. But it was big enough that it was pulling down the whole NPS average. So, you know, really dig into your data and know what's going on and then never discount the value of talking to the customer. Besides the fact that it is immensely energizing and, and it's, it's the thing I love most about what I do. Every time I talk to the customer, there's always an important insight that I wouldn't have seen through the quantitative data. And those conversations, those qualitative experiences for me are what help me build empathy with the customer and, and kind of really understand what's going on in their world. Yeah, that makes sense. Customer knows all. They're like, customer is hey. king. <laughs> <laughs> At least on my team, you know, customers are going to tell you the darndest things. And you're <laughs> listen. 
<laughs> who needs kids when you've got your customers? <laughs> exactly. And then how do you, and my last question on, on that front is how do you approach measuring success? I mean, you know, within an org, but within pager duty. Yeah. I mean, as a marketer, you are aligned with the business metrics of the company, right? So in one really important thing in working with your marketing team is helping them ladder up to the company's metrics, right? And helping them understand how they are contributing to those metrics and really being able to break it down into what are the lead indicators and what are the lagging indicators, you know, because a lagging indicator might be net new ARR, a lagging indicator might be, you know, new customer lands. And with the marketing team, you want to make sure that they can build really well, you know, well quantifiable metrics in order to understand how they're contributing to those metrics at, at each step of the journey. So I'm a, I'm a really big fan of having great data infrastructure in place and being able to break that down and understand, you know, what's happening at every stage of the funnel and then making sure that we can align with our partners and on the product team and on the sales team around those metrics, right? Because you're really sharing and creating that customer journey. So you need to measure it in the same way and make sure you're all building up to the same company level KPIs. That makes sense. I feel like there could be a whole nother podcast on working together with what's the best way to work together with the different teams, especially, you know, that's, that's such a topic of conversation for early stage companies too, but it's so important, especially in a product first company. Too. It's so important. And yeah, no, I would, I, let's do that podcast. Yeah, we're doing we'll to have that conversation. <laughs> All right, done. It's, it's, um, on, it's on the books. Yeah. And, and metrics drive alignment, right? So it is really important. Mm-hmm. Something you said earlier is that you got an MBA. Shout out to your East Coast school, uh, Harvard Business School, our, our neighbor at OpenView. But would you recommend that to other marketers looking back? And how did you know that was the right decision for you to do that? You know, I think it is really a, a personal decision, right? It's not, it's not one of those, you know, experiences that's essential to success. That said, I felt like getting the MBA really gave me the perspective of the whole business and the CEO. And that really helped me as I started to run product lines and whole businesses in most of, in most of my leadership roles, I've actually had a revenue line as well as running marketing for the organization. So the MBA for me helped me think like a CEO. It also helped me understand the board level perspective, which has been helpful as I've started to do board roles as well. And I guess the other thing I didn't really realize when I got the MBA and I appreciate in hindsight is that you know, the MBA has given me really a wonderful community of people who support each other in, in pursuing our careers. Many of my closest women friends are from my, my days as an MBA. That's awesome. So you just mentioned the board. You, you got to see inside the boardroom and you know, you're, you're on the board of HubSpot. What, what makes a board member effective? And especially, you know, as a CMO on a board and you know, yeah. what advice do you have for, I feel like I know that sometimes it's such an overdone question, but people really are like, how do I get on a board? Especially as a woman, <laughs> get your MBA. That'll help you. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so, yeah. So I've, I've been on the board of HubSpot for five years and I, I mean, I've been so fortunate to be part of what is such a unique public board. You know, first in terms of just the company and the amazing culture that HubSpot has but also the exceptional individuals on the board. It is also a board that's very diverse, that brings a variety of backgrounds and experiences into the boardroom. And, you know, I think 
maybe using an, an orchestra analogy, yeah, I think Brian Halligan, who's the CEO and founder of HubSpot, it is really like the conductor of an orchestra with the board. You know, he works closely with the board to build a board that has distinct but complementary skills, experiences, and backgrounds. Like he really has a portfolio of theory in terms of how he brings together the skills in the boardroom. And I think that's important to think about as you you think about being on a board is to really think about what what is your unique value proposition to the board? Like how can you contribute to the, the board and the company? How are you going to help that company drive their success over the next five to 10 years? What are the set of skills that you can bring to the company to help them be successful? And, and how does that relate to the other, you know, the other skills on the board? You know, just like an orchestra, no one is playing solo, but everyone has a distinct instrument together. You're making the music, you know, similarly, you want to bring together a, a set of board members that are, that are all bringing really unique perspectives and experiences to, you know, really creating, growing and protecting long-term shareholder value. And I think the way in thinking about how you get there, I think people should start by doing advisory work, maybe doing a private board and get in getting some of that board experience under their belt. And then you know, also just making sure you have know, public board is a big commitment. So making sure that they have the, the time and the space to really, you know, fully support a public board role. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it sounds like HubSpot has done, you know, we, we obviously being a Boston BC, love the HubSpot, we love all the, the folks at HubSpot, but especially from the board perspective, Brian, just it really does seem like he's, you know, built such a great, you know, group of leaders, but also a great board as well. So it's, it's always nice to see that from a, from a local company. What instrument would you be? Or what instrument are you? You had to pick what instrument. That, wow, that is a great question. Um, <laughs> I, I, you know, I would not be the loudest instrument. Um, so definitely, you know, like the trombone and the drums are out. I, I, I think I'd probably be more along the lines of, of violin. Okay, so I was um, thinking violin in my head. So there you go. I think that's a, I think that's a good one. I've also just always wanted to know how to play the violin. So that's just the first one that, that comes to mind. So trick question. We want to keep you sharp here on this this interview. So I how, how would your team? Do you think if we pulled them, how would they describe your leadership style? Yeah, now my team, if they were describing my leadership style, I mean, I think they would like, you know, not not to reuse the orchestra conductor, but, you know, I really do think about my role as helping my team members be successful. I do think of myself as a service leader. And what I would do with my team is say, hey, let's together, we're going to set a clear strategy that ladders up to the company strategy. We're going to make sure that everybody knows how they contribute to that strategy. And then my job is to make sure people need have the resources they need, that I'm able to remove the obstacles that might get in their way to make them successful. And, and also ensure that they stay close to the customer, right? Because the closer they, your team can be to the customer, the better the decisions they'll make. Um, so, you know, back to that. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, kind of of back to that conductor, but not everybody, you can't play solos, right? Everybody has to be playing from the same music. So to me, that really aligns with how you set the strategy and making sure that everybody is aligned around a strategy. And then it's much easier for them to independently go do what they need to do. And, you know, I really think about motivating people by giving them a path to their own success and setting them up for success. And I think you do that by 
you know, first understanding what their definition of success is and what their career goals are, and then helping them get the experiences that'll make them successful. And when I think about marketers, like one of the things that CMOs or people that want to be CMOs struggle with is how do you get experience outside of your domain? Because a lot of marketers grow up in a really specific domain. They grow up as product marketers, as they grow up as digital marketers. And to be a CMO, I always say you need to be, have your core area. You really do need to be T-shaped. You need to be deep in an area, and then you need to have gotten experience in other areas. So I always work with my leaders on how can they get experience in one of those flanking areas, right? If you're running corporate communications, how do you also get experience in brand? Or if you're running digital marketing, how do you also get experience in product marketing? And that helps people grow into to CMOs. And that's one of the things I'm really passionate about is helping, you know, helping people be successful in their careers. And I'm proud to have grown some great CMOs in the industry. That's awesome. I was going to ask what recommendations you had, but you answered it. You answered it all in one. So <laughs> very efficient answer. I love that. What advice would you have given your younger self? I mean, you obviously have had an absolutely killer career. So I don't know if your younger self envisioned that, you know, when when you were coming out of school, but what would you have told recently graduated Julie from undergrad? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Like so much. Um, I think I'm literally picturing my younger self cringing, but you know, I think first off, understanding the role of alignment and that it might sound a little expected, but I've always found that you, you kind of think you have alignment between teams in an organization. And this is importantly, particularly important as you, as you move up in your role, because part of your job is to make sure you're driving alignment for your teams. And I've definitely been in situations where I thought we had alignment and I'll give an example from a past company where we were like, okay, great. We're going after mid-market customers. Um, and then as I double-clicked on the plans, I realized, okay, marketing had built a plan around mid-market. Product was building a plan that was essentially for SMB um, because they love that self-service space. And enterprise, the sales team was going after enterprise customers because they had bigger dollar value. Right? Yeah. <laughs> like You're just not going to be successful if yeah. you don't have alignment around the customers you're going after and the go-to-market that you're building there. So definitely a learning for me that part of my role as a leader is to, to make sure that I'm able to help drive that alignment in the organization, because that's going to help drive success for everybody. That's definitely one piece. I'd say the other is just knowing, invest in your community of peers and particularly in marketing, like marketing's hard. <laughs> I'm sure every domain is hard, but marketing is hard and it's constantly changing right? There's lots of new technologies. The tech stack is constantly evolving. You have to be a a data scientist as well as an analytics person. You have to be able to build the narrative and run great creative. You know, there's a huge scope in terms of what marketers do. And, you know, I think it's really important for marketers to build their own community, right? Their own black book of who they can call to ask for help. And, you know, I think it took me a while to realize that it's okay to ask for help. And you, you do so much better when you reach out to your peers and you know ask them questions and often find that they're going through a lot of the things, same things that you're going through. And you know, you kind of you get what you give. Yeah. It's funny you say that. We were as talking to the the CEO at Puppet, Yvonne Wassener, and that was one of oh, her yeah. biggest. Yeah, she, you know, she said, being a leader, you have to ask for help. Like 
Yeah. Smart people ask other smart people when they don't know things. It's okay to do that. That's how you exactly. learn. Exactly. People get scared to do that. They think maybe that's not a sign that they know what they're doing. But she's like, no, it's a sign of strength that you want to be a yeah. better person or leader. And I think it's making making time to kind of have those forums and those connections so, so that you can't ask for help. Because I think a lot of people are like, yeah, I know it's okay to ask for help, but they just don't, they don't have the time and the capacity to reach out and, and make those asks. And I always appreciate it when someone asks me for help, I get right back to them. And I know that I'll probably ask them to return the favor. Yeah, exactly. It's nice to hear that. So if you're listening, it's okay to ask for help. How can the world of SaaS, you talked about this, that, you know, Jen and Pager Duty subsequently are, you know, building an inclusive culture is very important, but how do you think the world of SaaS can be more inclusive? I think, you know, certainly some strides have been made, but there's still a lot of work to be done. Uh, yeah. What do you see? I mean, again, that could be a whole third podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, and, and there is still so much work to be done. But it was one of the things that really attracted me to PagerDuty is that, you know, as we were discussing earlier, Jennifer has just been an amazing champion for diversity and inclusion in SaaS, but in tech overall. And, you know, I think it really does start at the top. So, you know, for important, for example, it's really important, and you saw this with HubSpot, but also with PagerDuty, you know, for a business to have diversity on their board, right? And for that to really reflect different perspectives and reflect the diverse communities that we serve. And, you know, in addition to building a diverse board, you know, you really have to think about how do you put the mechanisms in place for inclusive hiring practices, you know, committing to diversity at every level of the company, and then making those crucial investments in leadership development. This is another thing that PagerDuty is is really unique for, is that uh, we have an amazing leadership development program and, and incredible development programs overall. I mean, my my team goes you know, like goes through management development on a regular basis, and that's really important because a, a lot of companies have you know obviously companies struggle with diversity in their hiring, but Oftentimes, there's also challenges in terms of how are you retaining diverse leaders within your organization. So that leadership development and that inclusion in the organization is really critical. And communication is also a really important part of that. You know, thinking about how do you get all of your leaders to foster that culture of inclusion and belonging? And, you know, I think oftentimes leaders don't feel like they have the tools to support inclusion and diversity and, and talk about it and incorporate it into how they manage their teams. So I think it's really important for companies to take the time to work with their leadership teams to think about and talk about, you know, what are the things that we can do as we communicate with we, our teams, as we organize our work to make sure that inclusion and diversity is just part of how we do business. Yeah. Well, that that sort of leads me to my next question. My last formal question for you is, <laughs> what do you think the next five years will look like for PLG companies outside of, you know, hopefully they're, they're more diverse across the board, but outside of that, what's your prediction there? I think the pandemic and COVID has accelerated the product-like growth model, right? So I do think the product-like growth model is, is here to stay. And the customer journeys are becoming increasingly digital, right? And yes, we're going to go back to in-person and we'll have those in-person touch points more often. But I think we've also really seen that we can innovate in a digital first customer journey and we can find really new ways to reach our customers, you know, whether it's 
virtual events or giving them more ability to access information about the company and create communities. It's not that that had to happen because of the pandemic. I think for a long time, customers have been asking us for a more digital customer journey because it, it really puts them in the driver's seat, right? It allows customers to easily experience your company and your product without friction to kind of buy the way that they want to buy and hand raise when they want to talk to a salesperson or engage with your team. So I think one of the benefits of product-led growth is really that the, the customer is in the driver's seat. And I always say product-led growth is really customer-led growth. Yes. Yeah. And I don't have a crystal ball for certainly after this year, <laughs> like I would swear any crystal ball action, but I think the changes that we've seen over the past year are here to stay. Now, in how customers research, try and, and buy products. And that means that, you know, we, we have a real opportunity to double down on that product-led growth model. I, I certainly agree. All right. And my last five questions for you. Are you ready? I am ready. Tough ones. All right. Who's your, who's your female role model and why? Laura D'Andrea Tyson, who is a professor at UC Berkeley, who was head of the business school there, and was someone who hired me as a research assistant early in my career. And it underscored for me, it's really important to have women role models early in your career. Yes, very much so. I, I love that. What actress would play you in the Pager Duty movie? Or the movie of your life, which includes Pager uh, Duty. <laughs> Uh, oh, this is a tough one. Um, I'm going to have to go with Laura Dern. And okay. the reason I say Laura Dern is, well, she's a great actress, but you know, she chooses her roles carefully. She takes risks. Uh, she's had longevity and, you know, it's been amazing to see her in everything from Blue Velvet to Big Little Lies and Star Wars and Jurassic, Jurassic Park. Park. Yeah, I, a lot of diversity there now that you say that out loud. Yes. I love the range. I love the range. <laughs> I love that. What does your morning routine look like? You have to sum it up. Well, you know, I think it's like everybody's has changed right now. What was your pandemic morning routine? (laughs) My pandemic morning routine has been great because I have been able to take back about an hour a day on each side of of work because I don't have a commute anymore. So, yeah, so it's been amazing. I uh, I have a new relationship with the treadmill and running, (laughs) which I do every morning while I listen to to podcasts. Love that. And have a little time to like, drink a cup of tea with my my husband and my daughter and get ready for the day. Oh, that sounds great. I was going to ask coffee or tea drinker. I'm with you. I'm a tea drinker too. What was your first job? Japanese tour guide in San Francisco. Okay. Did not see that one coming, but we got, like, <laughs> I separately at some point would really love to dive into that. And then um, what is your favorite productivity tool? And it may have changed in the past year, but as of, you know, today, 2021. Yeah. I mean, obviously my favorite productivity tool is PagerDuty because it's helps alert us when anything is, you know, we need to pay attention to in our marketing stack. But I would say I have real appreciation for Zoom. And I I know we all complain about how long, much time we spend on Zoom, which is a real issue. But I really appreciate that they've, Zoom and products like Zoom, but I think Zoom's done a particularly great job of scaling to meet the customer demand, has really allowed us to keep our lives humming during the pandemic, right? It allows me to see customers, to interact with my team. It's allowed me to stay in touch with friends and family. I've attended weddings on Zoom. And hey, if my mom can use it, they're definitely definitely doing something right. Yes, I I agree. I'm grateful for that productivity tool, even though if I need to feel, I feel like I need to cut down. Yeah. 
Zoom I fatigue have, yeah. is real, but it's it certainly, I mean, yeah, if, if all the people in my, you know, church, I feel like the average age is 85 and they all figured out Zoom. So I'm totally with you on that. So awesome, Julie. Well, thank you so much for, for joining me on Build today to talk, you know, gosh, all things marketing, MBA, and all the fun stuff in your stellar career. Yeah. So very much appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. You're Casey. welcome. Thanks for listening to this episode of the OV Build podcast, Building to Boss. We hope you learned as much as we did. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. Please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to stay up to date with all the new episodes. If you're looking for more open view content, follow me, Casey Renner, on LinkedIn. See you next time here on OV Build.